Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David, as always. Great IC news on tap this week. We have Roger Obando, formerly the uh, co-founder and CTO of Baker. So really interesting story there. Uh, but he's more recently written a book about minorities and business in the cannabis industry. Fascinating stuff. Great, great conversation. There's this narrative that minorities and women have a better fighting chance in the cannabis industry. Is that true? We're going to discuss, we're going to talk about it as, long, uh, as well as some other great topics, black market, uh, the normal hit list, as you know. Uh, it's a great episode, guys. It really is. Before we jump into the episode, I want to talk a little bit more about our newest sponsor, Bespoke Financial, bespokefinancial.com. Are you currently raising money? Has your valuation been cut in half from the last round? Don't raise a down round. Consider some debt. Debt is a working, living part of most businesses. The cannabis industry should be no different. If you're in this cannabis cash crunch, if the dispensary won't pay you, MedMen won't pay you, issue an AR invoice, an accounts receivable invoice. Bespoke Financial will lend directly against that. Guys, if you need this, this might be the time to call. This is the week to talk to Judson. Shout out Judson. Shout out Bespoke Financial, bespokefinancial.com. All right, let's get into the episode with Roger. I see news. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Roger, so nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Happy here in Venice. Anytime somebody comes to my apartment to the set, it warms my heart. Uh, I think you're best known, just from perusing your LinkedIn, as the former CTO of Baker. That's right. Co-founder and CTO of Baker. Co-founder and CTO. That's right. But you've had a number of dope jobs. I've been around the block. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm older than I look, which is the first thing I'll say when I get in front of a group of people. I'm turning 42 next month. Um, and I've been doing the professional nerdery since I was you know, 20 or so. I love that. Yeah. Define that. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you know, I came out of school right when dot com was a thing, like right when it became a thing before 1999, 90, 2000 was when I graduated. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, Y2K. That's right. Y2K was We're all, all fucked. Everyone was going. The world was ending. Right. Uh -huh. Everyone's bank accounts were going to zero out the yeah. next day. That sort of thing. But, you know, that's actually, See, I was stoked because I didn't have a bank account. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about it was like before that time, if you study computer science, you were generally going to go work somewhere like Microsoft or Oracle or something like that, right? And none of that seemed really fun to me. And so a friend of mine taught me how to build web pages when I was in high school. And I was like, now this is going to be cool. Just like HTML just stuff, HTML CSS? Stuff. Like, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like super yeah. easy. Um, just Even you know, I can do that. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, most people can do that now. No, right? no, no. A lot no, of people no. can do that. But I realized that I, like, I really wanted to do that. Also, as a kid, I always loved art. I loved to draw. And so I realized that with the web, there was this graphic design aspect to it as well, where you can kind of use both sides of your brain. And so, you know, I got to school. Um, I, went to, I went to Duke, and they didn't have, like, a web program. No way. No, it was just, like, this computer science. Duke, what, 1996? 96. Interesting. Yeah, it was just kind of this, it was wow. this new thing. And Duke, I mean, for, for as good of a school as it is, it can be pretty conservative. And, yeah, you know, a little bit. and bougie. And bougie. Was it bougie then? Uh, it was a little bougie then, you know? So, um, I know you talk very openly about being a minority and sort of what that means. How was that experience 
entering Duke. It's this very bougie sort of good old boy network. Right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have that conception about it, which is not completely wrong. Um, but the nice thing about going to public high school USA in Jersey, we were just talking about, right? I grew up in Hackensack, New Jersey. Um, I was the first kid in four years to go to Duke for my high school. Mm-hmm. And, and that kid was like a quarterback, right? So he went to go play football on the then terrible Duke football team. Cause Duke didn't have a good football team until about, let's call it six years ago. Still not that good. Still not that good. Yeah. Right. But you know, better than it was. Better than it was. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't know anyone at the school, which means that I didn't have like a little community to go immerse myself in. Um, you know, Jersey fairly well, you know, Rutgers, you know, everyone basically goes to Rutgers, Mm -hmm. which like how ridiculous of a state do you have to be to not call it New Jersey state? Right. Like every other state, they're like proud, right? Right. They're like Arizona state. Right. Even though Arizona state is like, you know, whatever. They're like Arizona state. Right. Rutgers? Yeah. What does that even mean? Well, don't what, they call what's it a the, Rutgers? The State University of New Jersey now? Like it's a subtitle? I don't know. Or something like that? I don't know. But you know, anyway, I had <laughs> gotten into Rutgers and I was like, well, the last thing I want to do is go to Rutgers because everyone that I knew in high school is going to be at Rutgers. This is just going to be like an extension of high school. And I wanted to, and actually I talk about this in my book. Um, I wanted to kind of, you know, figure out who I really wanted to be as an adult, right? And so going to a school where you don't know anybody, it's really easy to kind of say, well, like, what, I, what do I like about myself? What do I not like about myself? And let me do more of that and less of that, right? Um, and so, you know, Duke was great for that. I thought it was going to be, you know, for lack of a better term, a very whitewashed university. I thought there was going to be very little diversity. And you know, don't get me wrong, it's not, not the most diverse campus I've ever been to. But it wasn't as bad as I thought not it was. Not bad. No. And, and actually, there was cool. a lot of Latinos um, at school. Uh-huh. And I have a really funny story about that because I was approached <laughs> – by the um, like Latino Student uh, Association, right? And they're like, welcome to school. You know, you got to come join us. We got to look out for each other. We have to make sure that no one's going to blah, 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 whatever. And this was like three months in. And I was like, dude, everyone's been nothing but nice to me. I don't cool. know what you're talking about. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is isolate myself. Right, yeah, yeah. So I actually ended up with a really diverse group of friends back then. Very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. That's I guess... College universities, they're pretty liberal, right, in general. Yeah. Well, I went to University of Arizona. Producer Eric and I both went to University of Arizona. And, you know, I mean, Arizona was conservative, but the campus and the college and the professors weren't conservative. You know, I, mean, right. I guess that's just how universities are in general. Yeah, I mean, I think as that's I've gotten, good to hear, though. No, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that, you know, especially when you're a few years out of school, right? Like you mentioned Duke is a bougie school. And that's uh-huh. for sure. And you come uh-huh. out of school, you wave that flag real proud. Yeah. Right? I went to Duke. That first job you get, yeah. it's like, yeah, because I went to Duke. Yeah. First thing on a resume, boom, right? Yeah. And then you come <laughs> to realize a couple of things as you get older. One, that degree serves you one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to get your first job out of college. Right? right? After that, they're looking at your performance at your last job, mm-hmm. not where you went to school. I mean, mm-hmm. that might be a deciding factor if it's a tie between you and somebody else. Or right? like if you wanted to go get an MBA. Or right. Something like that. Exactly. But also, like, I've come to realize that, you know, had I gone to Rutgers, I, I could have gotten the same quality of education. Right. Because it really is what you make of it as a student. Sure. If you find the right professors, you do whatever you need to do oh, to get yeah. into the right classes. But what I got out of going to a bougie school was a network of people. That, you know, and it worked for you. It absolutely. has. So worked. you come out of school and what's the first job? I went to work for a company in New York called Sapient. Um, and they were one of the first kind of big multinational web development consulting uh-huh. firms. Uh-huh. Um, and it was great, man. I was like, I mean, it was huge. I think at the time we were 1800 people 
And, and you had a computer science degree at this point? Yep. Or that's Co- what you... Yep. Yeah. Computer right. science and visual design. Got it. Um, because design. again, I, I knew I wanted to not do traditional computer science stuff. I wanted And on to do which side of that range are you are you more on the UX, UI side or are you more on a back-end sort of side? You know, it's funny. I uh, When I graduated, I came out all gung-ho that I could do both equally well. Right. And then I started working with real designers. Right. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not much designer. more of a computer science guy Well, than that's I am. cool. I mean, yeah. the quote-unquote full-stack developer is like yeah. this unicorn thing, right? Well, like, I mean, it's easy. They it's exist, easy. but they get paid a lot and, you know, anyway. But also, like, the world we live in now is very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago, uh-huh. right? Like, 15 years ago, you'd have someone who was a DBA, who was a database administrator. Because it was a very specific skill set you needed to have to learn how to stand up and run and design and optimize databases. Now everyone just throws everything in Mongo and it's fine, right? Uh Like you don't Uh need to be good at it. The systems have gotten so good and so efficient that you can be pretty, you know, middle of the road on most technologies Mm -hmm. and, and be effective, right? The problem comes when, okay, well, I can be effective at a company that gets 100 visitors a month. I can be effective at a company that gets 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. You start getting into the 1 million, 2 million, and you start running into big scale problems. That's when having like really specific knowledge about specific technologies comes in handy. You absolutely need to do that. I see. Yeah. So for the most part, I can, you know, yeah, stand anything up, front end, back end, all yeah. that sort of stuff. That was a great description, man. Oh, thanks. That was good. Yeah. I've been around a lot of tech people. You know, I spent my whole 20s in San Francisco operating, investing in tech companies. So that's part of my background, too. I don't miss it. But it made me very smart. <laughs> I have to say that. It also, I think um, it makes it easier to understand a lot of conversations that are happening in our world yeah. these days, right? Fuck yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I like, you know, I want to say thanks for pointing out that it was a good description. It's actually something that I've been told many times. Uh-huh. My, uh, my chief revenue officer at, at Baker, uh, her name was Carter Davidson. She's still to this day one of, the, one of the best salespeople I've ever met and just a really great person to work with. And she would constantly say that. She's like, I'm not a tech person, but you do a really good job of helping non-tech people understand yeah. technical concepts. Yeah. And I think that's really a, an important skill for a, you know, a CTO or a CIO yeah. to have. Because so many of them just want to kind of speak at you and have you just right. go glaze over and not understand what you're talking about. Um, well, part by design and part by luck, I spent most of my 20s in little tech companies. Okay. Not big tech companies. I didn't ever want to work in a corporation. My goal was always to be as close to the founders as possible and try to learn. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was the goal. I didn't have a lot of debt and everything. I was very fortunate that I could I could do that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I could sort of scrape by and, and try to learn that kind of stuff. Um, and thankfully, like, I just had a lot of people that were so friendly and would, like, smoke weed and explain things to me, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, people at OnFleet that I worked in a long time, you probably know what OnFleet is. That's I, a, we integrated with OnFleet at Baker. Yeah, I yeah, know yeah. Well. Great product. I, I spent, like, almost three years working at OnFleet. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, like, number six or something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, I love the technology there. Yeah. Fantastic guys. But yeah, yeah, no, like for real, like David, Mikel, Holland, Andrew, these people, like they, they, they explain these things to me before that too. I had other people that, right. you know, but yeah, like we, we spent a lot of time and I'm thankful for that, even though I don't even do that much technology stuff anymore. So speaking of Baker, tell me about this. I mean, it's interesting because it's a name so many people know, <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like so few people actually know what happened there. Right. No, absolutely. So in the best way you can, what happened there? Right. All right. So I'll run you through the quick... Uh, the quick and dirty. The and then we're going to get into some, some hot topics. Great. So, yeah. Sounds good. Um, so we started Baker, uh, David, Joel, and I. We were in New York City. 
and uh, David and Joel were working together on a startup at the time, and I had my own startup with another partner, um, and we were both in what I like to refer to as zombie startup mode, right? It's this point where I'm sure you're, you're familiar with it, where you've raised some capital, you've got some traction, but you don't have enough capital left to really throw fuel on the fire, and you don't have enough traction to go out and get a ton more money to throw fuel on the fire. Yeah. So you're basically got the countdown clock going on the wall to when do we run out of money yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, I had this conversation with a startup this morning. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a rough place to be, And they're pulling their hair out. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. a rough place to be because at some point, you know, start, start as a small tangent, right? A conversation I've had a lot recently is there's a unique skill set you have to have as a startup founder to be able to first and foremost fall completely and totally head over heels in love with an idea so much so that you're putting it above everything else in your life, right? Your personal life, your health to a certain extent, right? Forget having hobbies, right? You're just, this is what you do all the time. But then you also need to be able to be very objective and identify the exact moment at which point it's not going to work and then divest yourself from it completely. Emotionally. Emotionally, Mm -hmm. just from one day to the next. Mm -hmm. And that is really, so hard, really difficult. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, You spend so much time like putting everything you can in, but anything beyond that, it's diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, nope, got to pick up and go. And so we were kind of in that phase. And this was 2014. We were seeing all this imagery from Colorado. I'm sure you guys remember this, the media shots of the people, the lines of people wrapped around the block, right? Um, And we're looking at this and we're sitting in New York and we're ordering Grubhub and Postmates and whatever. I don't think Postmates was around then, but like, you know, this food delivery service. And we just kind of had this moment of like, why can't someone do this for the cannabis industry? Mm -hmm. You know, we had done a little bit of research and understood that two out of 10 consumers in cannabis dispensaries spend 80% of the revenue, right? So we're looking at these lines of people. 20% spends 80%. 80%, yeah. yeah. And I've heard that before too. Yep, yeah. Same, absolutely. same number. Yep. Yeah. Habitual user, right? Yeah. There's a person who's standing in line with three, 400 bucks in their pocket. Yeah. They're going to buy an ounce. They're going to buy as much as they can. This is the flower co yeah. customer. And this exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and they don't want to talk to a butt tender. Yeah. They know exactly what they want. Yeah. Right. If you don't have this one strain, fine, I'll take this other strain. You know, I'll take my daytime weed, my nighttime weed, whatever yeah. it is. They don't need any help. Right. But they're being made to wait in line behind all these tourists from Wyoming who are going to smell 14 jars of bud and walk out, maybe buying a joint or two. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. that was the, the they're very... going to spend 20 bucks. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and we said, how do we solve that problem? How do we get that guy with 400 bucks in his pocket uh-huh. through this line quicker? So it's a better experience for him or her. It's a better experience for the dispensary. Um, everyone's happy. And we said, well, we can just apply what we know from these delivery markets in New York. And so we set up to create a online ordering platform, which is the first thing that we did. Um, you know, ease was already here in California. We decided to go after other markets. Um, I can understand now why they weren't spreading any more than they were. We're like, well, ease is kind of competition. What's going to happen if they decide they're going to come into Colorado, but they wouldn't because Colorado wasn't doing delivery. Right. Mm, So, so we're doing order ahead, place an order online, get to the express line, pick up your stuff, pay. And that worked. That was a kind of foot in the door. Realized once we got to Denver, we had to open up operations in Denver because people in Colorado were like, why are we going to give money to a New York company? We're not going to work with you. We legalize this here. Yeah. Made a lot of sense. Picked up, moved to Denver and set up shop there. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that there was a dispensary opening up on every other corner. And we saw that the the long lines and that wasn't going to be an issue for very long. So what's next, right? What's the next issue? And we realized that with every new dispensary that opened up, they were all doing new customer specials. They were all doing, you know, discounts. discounts. It was a race to the bottom on pricing. Yeah. 
And uh, we knew that was not going to do well. That was well. a great day for consumers. It was a great day for then. the cannabis consumer. Oh, man. Absolutely. But for the businesses that yeah. we were trying to support, you know, these were the guys paying our bills. Mm-hmm. We're like, well, how do we help you guys? It's like, okay, well, customer retention became our new focus. Mm-hmm. How do we get people to stay with you despite the fact that it might be a little cheaper for a short period of time down the road? And so we came up with the industry's first digital loyalty program. So you started accumulating points, whether in store or online, and then you could cash those in for free stuff, whatever. And I've come to realize that there's few things that people love to get for free more than weed. Yeah. Like free weed is just a great indicator. It's a great, um, sorry, uh, incentive for people to. Uh, so to every time shopping. I go to the dispensary, I go to a place called Green Goddess here. I know it well. Um, they use trees. But yeah, they do. anyway, Trees is a great company too. Yeah. But um, every time I go in there, I always have like, I don't know, two or three dollars worth yeah, the credit exactly and like that's not that significant on my eighty dollar ninety dollar purchase right but like still feels good right yeah <laughs> of course you love getting that discount yeah. right and then we realized that once we started to spread with that that we were accumulating a ton of data around consumer habits what they're buying how much they're spending are they edible people are they flower people are they vape people and also, you know, you take that and compound it by the fact that the industry has so few ways to market to consumers. You can't use Facebook. You can't use Google ads. You can't mm-hmm. use Instagram, really, you know. And we said, well, we can just we can fix this problem for them again. We can create a targeted marketing tool set. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the big aha moment that we had where we started selling tools to dispensaries to say, hey, we're just going to take all the data from your consumers, from your point of sale, from your loyalty program, we're going to munge it all up together and we're going to start providing you insights to say, you should start sending text messages about edibles or to this group, you should start sending messages about, about vapes, etc. And, you know, it w- worked really, really well to drive people back into the store. Um, and so we started seeing some pretty astronomical growth. Uh, we got into, I think, over a thousand dispensaries in, in North America, so Canada wow. and the U.S. That's a lot. Yeah. In what period of time? I mean, we started the company officially January 1st, 2015. It was after six months of kind of proof of concept and all that. And these numbers are late 2018. So three and a half years. Wow. Which is, is crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, we were the only game in town for a long time. And they're time. each paying you an average. What's the ACV? Uh, I mean, each is paying us on average, let's call it. 2400 a year right so pretty not that high but not, not that not high. low either right i mean there was both ends right just yeah. like any SaaS strategy yeah you have the the multi-tiered price point should i ask about the median would that be a better indicator <laughs> yeah i mean i wish i had the number off the top of my <laughs> I'm head just kidding, but, i'm just kidding um it was so it starts going really well it starts going really well right um and at what point does tilt come knocking Right. So that, again, is about 2018. Right? Okay. And we had raised... You had posted point. huge revenue numbers. Yeah. You had raised money from... They've all been on this show. But yeah. Yeah. You know, all the investors. And, yeah. And, 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 you know, all those other guys. Yeah. And, you know, we'd raised $11.5 million uh, yeah. privately at Good that point. Good chunk of money. At that point, when you're talking about mid-2018... Not at that point. At any point. I mean, at man, any that's point. That's a good chunk of money. That's a good chunk of money. We yeah. had... You know, a 10,000 square foot office in Denver. We had 70 something employees. Yeah. Um, we were in a good place, but, you know, the money, this was right when the money was starting to dry up, right? This was right when everyone was like, well, if I'm going to write a $10 million check, it better be a damn good reason for why I'm writing it. Yeah. And so yeah. we knew that raising private capital at that point, after raising an $8 million Series A, I mean, you know how all this stuff goes, right? For optics and for, you know, perceived growth numbers. It's got to be higher. It's got to be higher, right? It's yeah. got to be a 12, 13 million at yeah. least yeah. to at make least. people comfortable with the story yeah. 
of what's happening, right? Yeah. So much of this, and I don't know, you know, what your average listener is, but so much of this money raising and everything in tech is so much about the story that it's you can narrative. tell. It's all it's narrative, narrative right? Yeah. Um, and so, for the story to work, we'd have to raise thirteen million. Now, we thought about that, you know, and my my poor co-founder Joel, like it seems like from day one, all he did was ever go out and raise money. Yeah, that's that's, that's what you do as a CEO, yeah. right? You yeah. go out, you raise money, and then David and I would take that money and we turn it into product. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, we started saying, we're going to have a real hard time raising this $13 million. Not to mention that we had unfortunately been victims of our own success to a certain extent. Because, as I mentioned, we were working with over 1,000 dispensaries at this point. That was like 36% of the market. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible amount of market share. Yeah, yeah. And it's not because we didn't try to go after the other 60-whatever percent, right? But we knew that that other 60-whatever percent had their own issues stemming from a lack of capital yep. in the market yep. that was going to make it hard for them to come on as clients. So we knew that our, you know, month over month sales numbers were going to start to flatten out right. and potentially even, you know, start to slow down right. just as, you know, uh, a result of what was going on in the market. Yeah. But trying to raise $13 million on slowing sales numbers was like, whoa, that's, that's going to be way harder than anything else. Right. And at the time, and did you have conversations with, like more traditional technology investors, like uh, like Sandhill Road, you know, was that part of the conversation or no? You know, yes and no, right? And the, when we started, when we raised our A, um, we had conversations with with those kinds of, of VC firms, and then we very quickly came to realize that none of them had any intention of investing, and they were just window shopping Got it. because of the fact that they all generally have LP agreements that have no vice clauses in them, right. which means they cannot invest in gambling, they can't invest in porn, they can't invest in cannabis. But you as a software, yes. they viewed it the same way. They still viewed it the same way because of the fact that we worked in the cannabis industry Got exclusively it. for the cannabis industry. Well, then that vice clause is a lot bigger than it's written. No, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and but it's also not just that, right? It's, it's about perception. Yeah. As well, right? Like yeah. Sandhill, everyone on Sandhill Road was talking to cannabis companies eventually to be prepared. You know, I think DCM is probably the only company that was an exception. They invested in um, in Ease. Uh, and then eventually Tiger Global came in. And, you know, but this was kind of at that time moving forward, we were in this weird gap. Um, but yeah. so also no, there were lo- others that were writing checks. I mean, there yeah. certainly were cannabis companies in Y Combinator at the time. Yeah. I mean, we went through 500 startups. Yeah. Right. But we had gone through in 2015. Right. Right. So we were much further down the line again. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I I don't know. Interesting. Interesting that that's how it worked out. I wonder how much of that was the balance of being in Denver. You know, how much does that cut both ways? Look, I'm sure you guys came out here a lot. But yeah, interesting. True. I mean, and but if you look at who else was making who was raising money at that time, Mm -hmm. I'd have to go through and, and look at the historical investments during mid 2018 to yeah. early 2019. Yeah. Um, I know that right around then is when, God, who was it? Was it Leaf Link who raised 12? It was, I mean, yeah. FlowHub just raised 23 not long ago, uh-huh. but they were all like very ancillary companies and they were all very traditional um, critical path companies. So uh-huh. point of sale uh-huh. or, or distribution logistics yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. We were unfortunately always put in the ancillary category, yeah. which is like, you're a nice to have, not a must have. Like if Baker goes away, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a sales lead channel that goes away, yeah. but it's not like if a point of sale goes away, yeah. if a point of sale goes away, you know, it's like all hands on deck. How do we get this thing back up and running? Um, so all that is to say that all Mission that critical, Mission yeah, critical. exactly. Yeah. 
with all that going on and with this going public kind of becoming a very um, common way of getting capital in place, we started to investigate that. And so, you know, at the end of the day, looking at the end of 2018, we had three other companies. We joined up, we, we, we merged, we went public in Canada on the CSE as uh, Tilt and then Tilt Holdings. And then we acquired, which I think two of the better things that we did out of that deal is we acquired Blackbird and we mm-hmm. acquired Jupiter, yep. Jupiter Labs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and well, then Jupiter also, has been an amazing Jupiter. acquisition for absolutely Tilt. no absolutely i mean jupiter is the cash cow if not for jupiter yeah like, absolutely i don't even know what your stock price would look I mean, like right now can't be much worse than it is right now <laughs> and, and you're all locked up and everything i mean i was locked up for a huge amount of time yeah, yeah. for anyone out there who thinks i'm swimming in money that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it doesn't work that, that way. doesn't yeah. work the way yeah um but you know we have but again like i think the thesis was right we all agreed with the thesis, which was let's take a bunch of companies that provide ancillary services yes. for the industry. Let's not focus on cultivation. Let's not focus on processing. And let's provide everything else that the industry needs, logistics and you know, um, software services, right? So Blackbird does all the B2B stuff and B2C stuff. And then Baker does the B2C stuff. And we did all those. And we integrated them. And now yeah. you can provide it all as a single platform, mm-hmm. which, again, I think is it's picks and shovels, which is what got us to where, how we got there in the first place. Yeah. We never, you know, everyone always assumed we wanted to be a point of sale, which I, I still find hilarious to this day. When I would talk to investors or other tech companies, I talked to the guys at Trees, I talked to the guys at Greenbits, and they're like, but wait, aren't you guys eventually going to try to do this? And I would laugh and be like, I want, there's nothing that I want to do less then start a point of sale company. Yeah, but they're just looking yeah. through the lens of all the other companies, which is that's exactly what they did try to do. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah absolutely. I could but name five that 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 was their mm-hmm. plan. Right, we're going to get this little wedge, and then we're going right. to provide tools for the entire experience. And we, you know, we just said, hey, we'd rather be Switzerland. And uh-huh. like, if, I think that was smart. Yeah, I mean, we integrated with the top, you know, ten point of sale companies in yeah. this space, the ones yeah. that we could at least. Yeah. A lot of. The, it's been the headset model too, which has yeah. worked well for them. And those guys yeah. are fantastic, right? And yeah, some of the best. Man. I, those really smart well, guys. Sorry. A lot of people. What I find crazy is that a lot of people don't realize that those are the same guys who started Leafly. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cy and, and Brian and Scott, yeah, yeah. really great guys. Really humble guys. A lot of integrity. Really smart. Um, and love working just with like, those guys. Any chance? Just I like get. the model founders, you know? No, absolutely. Like, and the, I, they they don't feel like they're cool and accomplished, which is part of the secret sauce. Yeah. But but when they write a book or when they do something like that, like it's going to be very good. Yeah. Because they really they have navigated this whole treacherous cannabis wild west fuckery. There's no yeah, no other way to absolutely. put it, and come out way ahead. Yeah. You know? With the right timing. Too, which the is, right timing, the right partners, yeah. the right everything. I mean, knowing Sai, he owns a huge portion of that company oh, still, yeah. you know, like Absolutely. crazy. Anyway, thank you so much uh, for the background. Of course. I own a bunch of Tilt, like everybody else's, it's in the shitter. Yep. Um, and so that's why I asked. Yeah. And this is supposed to be a IC News, but it's a name that so many people know, and I thought it was worth Absolutely. having a little extended discussion about. Yeah, so. and it's funny. You know, I've never really been a huge stock guy until this whole thing yeah. came around. All of a sudden, it's every day I'm checking what's going on. But it's really interesting to see what goes on in the market and why. You sure. know, Like, sure. for example, today, we announced a partnership. I still say we. That's really hard to get over. I announced a partnership. It is hard to get over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, the Blink Group. Uh-huh, right, and uh-huh. to provide ISO standards for uh-huh. vape hardware, which I think is nothing but good news. Yeah, and the stock takes a hit of nine percent, mm. 
man, I'm just trying to do the math on that. Like, yeah. why? How, how, did, how those, did that happen? How did yeah. that happen? Is it because, and I start, you start going on this rabbit hole of it. All right, they're based in China, coronavirus. People think that it's going to be too much, you know, issue in the first couple of quarters of the year and the, the whole, I don't know. Like, it's crazy when you start letting yourself do that. By the way, Twitter drives me insane when you start doing Twitter stock research. I don't. It's all the haters. I don't do it's, that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, um, I try pretty hard to stay away from the daily news. I more on a weekly sort of basis. Like I love 60 minutes. Right. Or I love sort of the editorial type stuff. Um, the 30,000 foot view, the podcasts, whatever. But the daily headlines I find mostly to be a distraction. So I kind of try not to, but obviously weed stuff I hear about. Right. How how can you not? Eric reads the news. He, He tells me about the news. Okay. So because you are a real OG, I mean, let's it's just amazing. call Six it what years. it is, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, call it what it is. I mean, you have a baby face, but it's true. In yeah. this business, you're you know 157 years in this right. business, right? Dog right? years, right? That's the way this industry works. Weed years, yeah. <laughs> Weed years is crazy. So um, you have this amazing perspective on so many issues in the cannabis industry. Um, but let's get started with just like your book, why you wrote the book. You've been a technology nerdist as you put it yourself your whole life who said you could write a book why (laughs) why well it turns out no one said i could write a book and it was (laughs) it was pretty hard but uh you know it was a fun process you know the point of it actually this timing on this question is really good we can pick up um where we left off with the whole tilt deal right okay so the whole deal with tilt goes through and all of a sudden i i go from being a co-founder and cto of a 70 person company to being someone who according to the higher brass didn't matter as much of a 700 person company right yeah. so that didn't last too golden long. handcuffs how long did yeah. you have to work there oh uh, no i didn't i was gone well, you didn't have to no oh, i was fuck uh, yeah. a couple months amazing a uh, couple months after that and you know it's these things you know someone someone said this to me right after it all happened and it's it's i think truer words have never been spoken is you know first comes the merge and then comes the purge right you go into one of these things you have a bunch of teams that come together and there's overlap a lot, a lot of, of overlap, overlap right? Yeah. And it's like, well, who wants to be responsible for sales? Who wants to be responsible for you know running the software integration piece of this game? Who wants to be responsible for whatever, right? And event and everyone else just kind of falls off. Yeah. The whole point of doing something like this is to optimize operations, right? You go ahead and, and you you eliminate uh, redundancy, you eliminate unnecessary resources, and so it's very again to where we started the conversation, being able to kind of shift your mindset. Is very difficult. Hard to do. It's very hard to do. But it's like, all right, I, you know, we went through layoffs. Every like, everyone's talking about these layoffs and stuff. For example, um, Aurora, right, just laid off five hundred. CEO stepped down. Yeah. You know, MedMen laid off forty something percent of their staff. Beerman yep. stepped down. Stepped down. Right. Um, and then, you know, but I'm like, guys, we all went through. We went through this in January. Yeah. You know, January, February, and the yeah. industry, like, this is not new news. Mm-hmm. I think it's only gotten to the point now where the big companies have had no choice. They've tried everything else, and they're like, well, now we got to do these big cuts. The smaller ones have been getting hit along the way. They right? can't take on any more debt. Right. You can only have so much, you know? Right, and not only that, but the sources of financing have dried up. And so you, if you were operating at a loss for a growth model, all of a sudden the money dried up from one day to the next, and you got to start chopping up appendages just to, stop, just to, to, to be able to stay afloat. Yeah. Right, and so that's what people are doing. But anyway... You know, I, I got to this point where I'm like, wow, I, I, this is incredible. I, I took a pump company public and a big merger. And um, as a startup 
How yeah. old were you at that point? This is, I was 40 years old. Got it. 40 years old. So 40 years old. Yeah. You've had this exit. Yep. You're it's, rich on paper. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, it's the exit, right? Yeah. And that's this thing. Yeah. You, you, you find yourself in this new club, which is this club of people who've had an exit. And even small subset of that club is the people who've done it in cannabis. Pretty right. small club. Right. I take a look around the room and it's pretty much old white guys, right? Like that's, that's who's in the room who are, who have accomplished the same amount of stuff. And Hey, listen, I got nothing against old white guys. Some of my best friends are old white guys, right? But if I look back to where I grew up um, in uh, northern New Jersey as the son of Costa Rican immigrants whose parents didn't even graduate high school, right, I, I, all of a sudden I start to feel a whole lot different than most of the people that were there. And I was always the person in charge of diversity at Baker. Like I was always the person working with the hiring manager to be like, how can we get more female engineers? How can we get more people of color? How can we get, you know, I mean, we had give, a, give some tips on that. How do you get more female engineers? How do you get more people? Of color? You know, I think the biggest tip is you got to go to where they are. Right. So a lot of hiring people are like, well, if they would just sh- walk in the door, I would hire them I'm like, all right, that's not good enough. Go to women who code events. Go to LGBTQ coder events. These things exist in almost every major city in the country. Go there. Do your spiel. Be like, hey, I'm the nerd in charge of software over here. We're looking for a more diversified group of people to work with us. We'd love for you to come and interview. It really doesn't take that much. Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed how well that goes over. Um, and not to mention, you know, not that this is a priority, but it's basically free PR for you saying like, totally. we care enough about diversity that we're going to come find you mm-hmm. as opposed to wait for you to walk in our front door. Yeah. Right. And, you know, for a tech company, we were, I think at, you know, at the peak, almost 40% female, mm-hmm. right. Which is unheard of. I remember that from the Joel interview. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it was almost unheard of. And we had women in senior leadership, you know, again, Carter was, you know, um, top level executive and, and she was great. So, you know, I really always loved that, and that was something that was very important to me. Again, like we touched on this a couple times as far as diversity at school, diversity at work, and I wanted to create more opportunity for younger versions of me to have success in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I look back at, you know, the Latin American community and the things that stand in the way. And the book was not intended to be focused on Latin Americans. It's more underrepresented groups in general. But it's, you know, it's through my lens. And my lens is growing up as a Latin American kid in Jersey. And um, it's very difficult to go. Like, I remember, I, like, I just somehow, somewhere along the way, learned to not let what my parents thought get in the way of me doing what I was going to do, Right. I figured as long as I could come in with a good logical reasoning as to why I was going to do it, that, you know, that was enough for me to move forward with it. And if, as long as I could be successful, if anything, that was motivation for me to be successful. So I'd come back and be like, see the guys, this is why I did this. Um, but even, even that being the case, you know, coming to my parents at 35, 36 years old and being like, oh yeah. So after a 15, 16 year successful you know, career doing high level consulting for technology, I'm starting this what you're going to interpret as a weed company, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of people in my position would have a really hard time doing that. Um, you know, there's issues specifically because you don't have white parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you, think I agree. About it, my parents didn't love it, but they got over it. Yeah, you know, they didn't love it, but they got over it. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine. I know some very conservative, uh, all different ethnicities, families, and it would not have gone over that. Yeah, well. I mean, when you think about the last few decades in the uh, war on drugs. And, you know, we all at this point are familiar with the stats around, um, you know, the targeting of black and brown people and, and the enforcement, even though 
all segments of society consume at the same rate, you know, we're seeing um, over-policing of, of communities. Stop and frisk. All that, yeah. right? And so it's pretty easy to understand why someone who is an immigrant who is already watching, looking over their shoulder, right, because you're like, I got a target on my back because I'm here and a lot of people don't want me here. And so you're doing everything you can to stay on the right side of the law, to stay out of trouble. And then your kid who you, you know, sacrificed everything for, who, you know, went to a good school and you, you know, you paid a lot of money in relative to your world, a lot of money to send this kid to school and they've been successful. And then they come back and say they want to work in the weed industry, right? This industry that you've been actively avoiding for your entire life in this country mm-hmm. because you're worried about the fact that you've got a bigger target on your back than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And for that person to come in and say, I want to do this. Yeah, you're going to fight back pretty hard mm-hmm. on most of that. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I feel that we're not seeing a lot of young entrepreneurs enter the space because of that. And so for me, I, I decided that I was going to leverage this platform that I found myself standing on. Like, you know, it's amazing. Again, going back to what you're saying, if people think you're standing on a pile of money, it's amazing how much they'll listen to you. Right. Um, and so for me, I was like, well, here's an opportunity to use this platform to do some good, to inspire some people who may have otherwise not considered entering this industry to get them fired up about what's possible and to hopefully get them in to this industry now, right? I think those of us who have been in the industry for a while, it does feel like it's been 100 years, but we also know that it's still, you know, the first or second inning as far as the cannabis totally. industry is concerned. In fact, you could argue, this will be a gross generalization, mm-hmm. that nothing up until now has mattered. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I, can, I could so easily make that argument. Like, yeah, and it's, you know, it's weird as someone who has done so much in the last five years, but to be like, doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Yeah. 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 That's all just a precursor to where we're yeah, at now. Yeah. And now moving forward is what's really important. Um, but I also know, again, just from my experience that having diversity at the top is the best way to create diversity throughout an organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, again, if we look at it, as you just mentioned, then it's we're starting now. Let's get as many diverse groups of people in senior management positions as we can as founders, as C-levels, as VPs. Because that's just going to inspire these organizations to continue to include that diversity. And is that happening? I think so. Um, I I think the cannabis industry is this weird microcosm of old boys club, like you mentioned. Um, But also, you know, when you look at the traditional kind of grassroots part of the cannabis industry, um, cultivation, uh, etc. You're you're not seeing a lot of diversity there either for a lot of the same reasons we just talked about, right? So people who are coming in with a lot of the knowledge aren't terribly diverse group. The people who are providing the finance aren't a terribly diverse group, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the, those of us who have entered the space have you know brought a lot of diversity to it, um, and I think it's it's really happening, especially with this shakeout that's happening right now, right? So. Um, we see everyone, like we mentioned, going through layoffs. But for me, it's especially interesting to watch the software companies, right? The MedMen. MedMen has their own software uh, team yep. um, to watch Ease, um, to watch some of the point of sales. Like, they're, they're, doing, they're shaking out. And the talent that's coming in is more diverse just because the tech talent that's starting to join the industry now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is more diverse just because they're coming from traditional tech, yep. right? And the risk profile isn't as high as it was five years ago. Well, the salaries have gotten better just for starters. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of people that, again, I was fortunate enough to do it in technology and then I was fortunate enough to do it in cannabis. There was a long time where nobody got paid. Oh, yeah. And there were no sponsors on this show 
and it was hard. It was right. just hard. Everything was hard. Well, and that's you know? the thing, right? I mean, people, I think I've had the conversation several times with people want all the success, but they don't want to put in the hard work and right. sacrifice. Yeah. Right. They don't want to do the yeah. work. As someone who had been at a senior level technology position for the previous five years of my career, mm-hmm. you know, it's not boasting to say it. It's not an exaggeration to say that my market value at the time when I started Baker, I could easily be making $250,000 a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I paid myself $35,000 for the first two years of Baker. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Manhattan, Brooklyn when I first started this. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and that was without any end in sight. It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to do this until we get to this point and then we're going to get more money and then I guarantee myself a salary. Oh, that was the plan. No, it's like, yeah. that's the plan until we have more money. Yeah. And then maybe I'll give myself 60. Right, just to be able to live off of. I lived in my intern's closet for five months mm-hmm. in Denver when mm-hmm. I first moved there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so yes, there's more money now, which is nice. But it's from a tech perspective, what I love is that it's bringing in more seasoned talent. Yeah, you know, and that seasoned talent is used to having uh, a more diverse team in the space. So I'm hoping that's going to help drive it. So, I think you kind of answered the question: Are we doing a good enough job? No, we're not. Um, but you know, and it's, it's hard for me to say this because diversity is really important to me, but survival of the industry is more important to me. Mm. Right. And right Mm. now it is an all hands on deck. Let's Mm. make sure that the best of breed survive and move forward so that we have companies left to diversify. Totally. Or see the alternative for me is if we don't do a good job of saving, I like the way you put it, best of breed today then we're really in danger of what I think your biggest concern is, which is that New York, Wall Street, private equity suits come in and make it all homogenous and consolidate and all these things, right? I mean, so that's kind of the fight. I, I talk about it dramatically, but like there's a fight over the soul, of cannabis right now in the yeah. cannabis industry, right? And look, not all the old school weed people are good and righteous and not all the new school people are bad right. and sharks, Absolutely. but there's certainly enough in both camps. And look, as a journalist and as an author, mm-hmm. it's pretty fun to watch, right? Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> actually been the most interesting thing for me over the course of the last year. It's almost exactly a year ago that I left Baker. And I took the time to write the book. It was a lot of fun. I've been doing some advisory work. I've been consulting. I work with a group in L.A. here called The Fourth Movement. We're working on social equity initiatives, trying to provide licensing and and financing for them. Let's talk specifically about that. I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is where there's a lot of confusion, sort of overlap. And it's something that we probably haven't done a good enough job on this show of talking about, um, which is like there are all these minority equity in some cases one percent programs mm-hmm. in different counties we'll just talk about california for yeah. purposes of this and um look i think a lot of people have been largely disappointed absolutely with how they've come together but i know that's a general statement it depends on localities and everything but kind of give us your two cents on on that part in particular yeah i mean it's very difficult right it's it's a very difficult problem to solve and i think a lot of the problems, and I, I think my opinion on it can be a, a bit controversial and it can be a bit, you know. Love it. It's Let it rip. You know, you can't, like, a lot of people think social equity exists in a bubble outside of a capitalistic environment. 
And, and that's just not the case, mm-hmm. right? None of this happens without money. Mm-hmm. And so you have to take both of those things into account. So, for example, fourth movement. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but, uh, you know. Just from you. Yeah, just briefly, what we've done is Kareem Webb, who is the founder and CEO, has a family history of franchise work. So his, his father owns something like 13, I think, McDonald's in, the, in Southern California. He owns four Buffalo Wild Wings. He's got another few that are opening up. And years ago, they really started prioritizing opening up, opening franchises up in lower income areas and specifically working with people from those areas, first from a human capital development point of view and then management training, blah, 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 down the line, right? Like, let's give back to these communities that we're in. And if the people here aren't, you know, as qualified potentially as some that would be coming in from elsewhere, well, let's make it our responsibility to train those people, yep. right? Teach them and to fish, yep. as it were. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I really align with that. So when I found out that they were doing fourth movement, which, you know, the basic thesis there is, is, is pretty simple to understand if you understand what a franchise model is. Um, it's, it's not true franchise model, but basically you take a, a central back office entity, you raise a bunch of capital, um, you take that capital to take care of all the underlying systems, right? So I've been working, operating as their uh, CTO, fractional CTO, for cool. the last 10 months or so, yeah. uh, identifying systems, identifying uh, integration partners, identifying uh, logistics platforms, things like that, and then making sure that they all get integrated well. Yeah. And you know, knowing that it's going to be multiple stores in multiple regions, mm-hmm. right? Not just one store, yeah. right? Um, and then they took a bunch of the funding that they got and they said, okay, well, all right, we're going to do all that for everything, for, for supply channel, for uh, logistics, for real estate, for whatever we need. All cool. the underlying expenses we're going to yeah. handle. We're going to run an incubator program with uh, a group of social equity applicants, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of people don't realize in order to qualify as a social equity applicant, there's this laundry list of things that you can check off. And yeah. You have to have a certain number of them to qualify. You know, the ones that come to mind are you have to have lived in an area that was heavily impacted by the war on drugs. Um, you had to have made under a certain amount of money for the last X number of years. You had to live in a certain zip code, you know, for a certain number of years. You may, yep. Maybe you went to prison for a low-level nonviolent drug crime. Yep. Like, all these things add up, and they say, yes, you qualify as a social yep. equity applicant. Yep. That's just step one. That means you qualify, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to be any good at running a business, <laughs> yeah. right? And if you look at, then, the requirements... In fact, it may mean that Specifically, yeah. you're not. Exactly. I'll just by yeah. the disadvantages we outlined. That's exactly what I was going to say, especially yeah. because then you take that and you throw it up against the list of requirements to open a dispensary, period. Right, right, right. right you have right. to have the real estate right, acquired. Right. You have to have a business plan. You have to have a security plan. You yeah. have to have all these things that are, you know, basically adds up to millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Venn diagram of those two groups has a very small intersection, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so identifying this, what Kareem and Fourth Movement did was saying, okay, we know that this is the case. We know that these you know, the individuals in this group need help. Yeah. And the city initially... Don't have these skills. Right, and the yeah. city had promised that was going to be part of the program. They were going to train these individuals. And, and, of course, they underfunded it, and it never came through, and the training never happened, right? So Fourth Movement says, we'll handle it. So we run a group of people. Um, I think it was a little over 100 people through an incubator program uh, over the course of, I want to say, six months. But this all started before I joined the company. 
Um, it's a company or a nonprofit. It's a company. It's a company. No, it is a for-profit it's company. Totally company. It is a company. Got it. it is. I, I like, like to, that. I like to refer to what we're doing at Fourth Movement as conscious capitalism. So, just so I understand the deal, I like that phrase, by yeah. the way. And think about this after this. I'm going to ask you how I can get involved, how yeah. I can help. But um, so, you they come to you or you find them? How do how where do the leads come from? Community outreach, okay, right, reaching into the community and saying, you know, again, because Kareem had such a pre-existing network of people within these communities, yeah, he could just go out to his network and say, we're doing this. Who's yeah. interested in doing it? Um, and so then people identified as I want to be a part of this industry, okay, and then. They sacrifice over the course of six months or whatever, going to these trainings, going, you know, basically proving who is the most qualified. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that's the part that is really it's kind of touchy. People don't like talking about that. Yeah. People don't like looking at a group of people and saying, well, one person is more qualified and therefore most likely to be successful in this group of people. No one likes that. Everyone's like, well, we all have an equal chance. It's like, yes, you all have an equal chance, but there's limited resources. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to identify those who have the best chance. And if those people are more successful, they are going to then create more opportunity for the rest of the people in this group. Right. And so at the end of the, of the incubator program, um, the intention was, and, and this has been written about in the LA times, like people are up in arms about the fact that, we scored 13 licenses out of the 100 that were given out. People were like, well, how is it possible that you got so many of them? It's like, well, we were organized, we're organized. and we had capital, right? Totally. So we invested heavily in getting the real estate and in, in finding the right applicants. I mean, we set up – I was personally setting up computers in a data lab on a T1 line uh-huh. to be able – and training. We trained paralegals to enter data. Uh-huh. Yeah. Be like, you have this applicant. You type faster than they do. We know – I mean, everyone knows that the first come, first serve application process was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But you know, <laughs> what what can you do, right? You can either complain about it or you can try to be the most competitive in that environment. Yeah. And so we said, if we have to train a group of people to enter data as fast as possible, I spend weeks optimizing PDF files to try to get them as small as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're still containing all the data so that it would upload faster than anyone else's, right? But if you look at what Fourth Movement had to do, they had to come reach out to me. They had to hire me. They had to pay me to do all this stuff. They had to pay all these other people, right? And this is all in support of this, you know, of the social equity applicants that we had invested in. Mm-hmm. And so it comes down to the same thing. Like there's social equity, but then you need capital and investment and network um, and a, a support group to help you get there. Very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's and very so cool. we're hoping that we get these people up and running. Oh, and I mean, the best part is the So people- when was that class? When was the class that you said went through? That happened the first half of 2018. Okay. Uh, sorry, 2019. Okay. And then the application process was in September. Okay. And like I said, we scored 13 licenses. Yeah. And so now the top 13 performers in that group are being gifted 81% ownership of a dispensary. Wow. Right. So that's the benefit that you get from. So that's the deal. Yeah. You go through the incubator. Yeah. You get a license. You guys take 19% for mm-hmm. the support. Everything. Yeah. Everything. You do the taxes. You do everything. No two. We run the finances. What about like at the operational level, like inventory and, you know, we're centralizing all that. Got it. You know, we're, yeah, we're centralizing all of it. That's really cool. So what you have to do is manage your store. You know, this is like what med men should have done. I agree. Yeah. Um, med people, as (laughs) Joyce of big rock would say Med people. That's good. Um, but yeah. And so, you know that, and what was really upsetting about all this is, you know, it's when everyone's fighting to get something they want, they're fighting as a community. Mm-hmm. When one person doesn't get what they wanted, then it's them against the world. 
Yeah. Right. And it's been really frustrating to watch that go down to where like at the beginning, we're all in this together. We're trying to do as much as possible for social equity applicants. And then unfortunately, and listen, it is very unfortunate. There's a lot of people. And again, this is the game, which is LA saying you have to have the property, you have to have this, which is crazy to think that these, you know, people who fall under the qualifications we talked about briefly, right, have to go and acquire real estate that is going to be rented at astrological rates because the realtors, the owners know that it's zoned properly for cannabis regulations. You know, not that hard to figure out when all of a sudden you got six people coming to you in the course of a week looking for a dispensary location. Yeah. That means you can start charging a hell of a lot more. And, you know, I don't want to say it's predatory, but they get it right up to the limit of how much they can charge and Mm -hmm. they create a, you know, and also not to mention because of the fact that you don't even know if you're going to get a license, you have to have all these, these opt out clauses in the lease which didn't drive the lease that much higher right so you're exposed to so much expenditure before you even know if you have a license and so i understand why people are mad i get it but it's like who do you blame in the situation well as long as we're assigning blame <laughs> that's one of the things i like to do on this show Lori ajax i'd love to have in this seat i would love to have a, conversation a lot of questions that i would like to ask yeah. Lori ajax but what I was going to say is one of the reasons that getting a license is so outrageous and the effort put into it is so outrageous is because the black market is eating legal cannabis oh, yeah. alive. I don't know the exact percentage. Data in cannabis tends to be a little hazy, yeah. as you know. But somewhere in the 60% range yeah. of cannabis sold in California is black market. Yeah. And look, I get it. Weed is expensive. You go to the store. I have money. I still think it's expensive. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, you got your cousin, your dude of whatever years, however many years you know, they come to your door. They bring you the same stuff that probably is in the dispensary anyway. That happens to me constantly when people are like, oh, here, try this weed. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, oh, it's the same shit that's in the goddamn green gauze. It's the gelato. It's the whatever. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It doesn't say Sherbinsky on it, but it is. And and so there's a question coming here. I I promise. Um, Looking forward to it. I understand why that's such a, a, a tough, tough decision for people. But... It's not scalable. We can't continue, right? Right. What do we do about the black market? Is it okay to smoke black market weed? Should we be shaming these people like they're smoking cigarettes? Like, what right. What do we do? I know, and this is... This is like that was a really topic. long question. No, about, I like it, though. But we I, got I like there. It. Yeah, and one of the things that I, I stopped calling it the black market a little while ago. Okay. I talk about this in my book a bit. It's uh-huh. just kind of this unconscious racism right like why is everything that's black bad right i just refer to it as the illicit market yeah right um illicit. a lot of people refer to it as a traditional market traditional which, you know, duty free duty free as well <laughs> i like that that's good yeah um and and you look at it and you no know, it's it's a very difficult issue right and i think the problem starts with the taxation why are the taxes so high and why is it that the bcc and, you know, the uh, DCR are complaining about no funds. I'm like, well, if we know how much money is being made. Where is it going? Where is it going? Right. You know, as we mentioned earlier, there was supposed to be training for the social equity applicants. Mm-hmm. You know, there was supposed to be budget earmarked for that. Mm-hmm. It never happened. Mm-hmm. Where does that money go? Right. And then how do you have the gall 
to raise taxes at the beginning of this year, right? So is it that what a lot of people are saying is that they're taking the tax benefits from this industry and putting it towards other issues? I mean, we all know that the California is in a deficit and has been for a long time. And there's a lot of money where that a lot of places where that money could be disappearing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But you can't have it both ways. You can't tax the hell out of the market and then complain about the illicit market surviving. Yep. You know, I mean, studies show that people are willing to spend more money on an altruistic alternative. Right. Like You and I like I. I had a guy here in California for years. He would come to my house. Sure, his selection wasn't as great as it could have been, but I knew I could call him and I could get stuff delivered to my house, and it was very reasonably priced. So I had a guy that was fantastic and brought me everything all the time, and it was better than what... I got that when I was in New York. I was in (laughs) Brooklyn. I had the best service ever. You ever watch that show, High Maintenance? Yeah. I basically had one of those guys, Uh right? Uh And they would just show up. Oh, New York is notorious for friendly. I mean, everything was packaged beautifully, like (laughs) ready for the legal market. It was expensive, though? No. I mean, it was not compared to what we're paying now in the legal market here. Like, what was a fire eighth in Mm. Manhattan in... This is 2014? 2014 cost. Uh, Top of the line... 55, 60. Okay. I mean, so like not... And obviously there's no tax. No tax, right? Yeah. That's out the door, right? It's basically the same price. Yeah, the tax, and they would always yeah. throw in like a cookie or a bag yeah. of key for something. You know, just kind of, there'd yeah. always be that kind of, call me back next time right, sort right, of deal, right? 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the convenience, you couldn't beat, right? And these guys would be yeah. there, you know, 30, 40 minutes after you you uh, you called them. And I, I thought it was genius the way they, they worked around the restrictions and that they just had a bunch of hipsters on bikes yeah, totally. with, you know, lockable cases that they can't search. Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, that's beautiful. That, that works really well. That's um, and so I, I think going back to the altruism thing, people want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. People don't want to break the law, right? There's, oh, don't get me wrong. There's a few counterculture individuals, sure. a small percentage in our industry yeah. that are always going to say, I'm never going to the legal market. This is the way we've always done it, you know, which is never a good reason to do anything. You know, just because we've always done it this way. Right. Um, I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> but, you know, everyone would like to. Like, I, I live one block from the Med Men in Abikini. Mm-hmm. And what's been shown, um, we have these conversations all the time at Fourth Movement as we're starting to, to roll out our 64 and Hope chain. It's like, well, what's the driver? Right. And I'm one of the people at the organization who has the most cannabis experience. Because, as you mentioned, I've been doing this for a while. And I was like, guys, I know you want to think that. X, Y, Z is going to be your differentiator, but you know what really makes a difference? Convenience. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. is it close by? Is it a good selection? Yeah. Do they have consistent product? Is right? the price reasonable? Is the price reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, I shop at MedMen mostly because it's right there. I can yeah. walk there in five minutes. Convenience. Right. Yeah. It's convenient. But so again, I have more money than most people. Right. 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 And so like, if, if it came down to me saying, you know, I'm living check to check or close to it. Yeah. And I can either go to MedMen, and once I slap tax on something, I walk out the door paying 80 bucks for an eighth, or I can call my guy, and that's 45 bucks, and I have a little bit more cash left in the bank, it's going to be really hard to convince me. Or, or, and they don't pay me, but they should, Flower Co. is an amazing option. I, honestly, it's not even a plug, but right. <laughs> if you smoke a lot of weed... Yeah. This is for you. I've you know? heard about these guys. I've never actually experienced so them. So they've but... been on the show. They're friends of ours. Yeah. It's a Costco model. Right. 
So they Bulk. charge you a yearly membership. Yeah. They sell you a little bit over wholesale. They probably have a little bit of margin yeah. in there. Um, but it's beautiful, man. And yeah. see, the thing that it changes is obviously they have the old pals and all the, all the the big ones. But what it allows you to do is reach and like buy the highest end stuff because right. it's like forty bucks. Yeah, I mean that's hard to beat. It's hard to beat, man. Right. I'm telling you. Again, you want to do the right thing. Uh, so but when it's that much of a difference, yes. How do you justify yes. it? You know, yes. You're just doing the best job you can to be fiscally so, responsible. At that aside point. from Flowerco, what do we do? What do we do with these people? I mean, yeah. it, it's like, do you steal bread to feed your family? You know, right. It's such a dilemma. Right. I think you know the industry needs the legal side of the industry needs to grow. In order for the legal side of the industry to grow, more consumers need to leave the illicit market and come to the legal side of things. Mm -hmm. In order for people to do that, you have to incentivize them to shop legal, which means you have to drop taxes. Mm -hmm. I think a tax holiday in California is a, a step. They one. raised them. I know. I think I saw are that. They crazy? I was like, are you? Cr this is the exact opposite. So okay, what you have to do. So when that happens, when I see that, that triggers this little suspicion. In the back of my brain, and I wonder if you have the same thing. Is this intentional? Are they are they trying to make it untenable? I just I think the people who are running the show are just not in touch with the cannabis community at large. It. They just don't get it. You know, they're not they're not the people who are are watching what happens day to day, right? They're not talking to people like you and I or all of my consumers, right? I, at the peak, we had over 2 million people on our platform. Yeah. And I could see what they're buying, how yeah. often they're buying, all this. They're not talking to them. Yeah. They're looking at budgetary numbers. They're looking at where can we bring in more revenue and not understanding that as you go down the line, getting towards the consumer, like you're these small tax changes you're making are going to have huge implications on the market in general, which in turn is going to affect you negatively from a, from a tax revenue perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... You know, and it's easy to blame the government uh, regulatory bodies, but they're incredibly understaffed, right? So it comes from even even higher up. Higher up, yeah. Right? Um, uh, look, these are not simple questions. No, they're really, but, really hard. But I talk about it every week on this show. We're failing. We are. We're failing. And it, no individual is responsible, but every founder... Uh, venture capitalist, private equity guy, lawmaker, we are all failing. And and the question is, what do we do about it? And nobody has a good solution, but there is one, and someone smart is going to find that solution. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think you also have to look at different markets, right? California is a mess. California happens to be the fifth largest economy in the world. Yeah. Right? It's basically trying to legalize in a country. Yeah. Right here. It is a country. And then you have all these municipalities and cities who want to run things their, their way. Their own way. Yeah. Right? What is it? 76% of California still doesn't have legalization. Yeah. Right? Even though the state legalized. Yeah. Um, and delivery in those localities is right. like, eh, yeah, supposed to be. But, right. Yeah. And so you're looking at a few really concentrated areas, right? A lot of people who live on the East Coast, for example, have no idea how red the middle of California is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. California is incredibly conservative yeah. between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Yep. Um, and so you're looking at these two areas, really. And, and these are also two innovation hubs. You have a lot of people who are trying to come after this new industry. And so there's a lot of competition. 
the regulators see dollar signs. They're like, we can take advantage of this, blah, blah, blah. And they don't realize that the person that they were intended to serve at the end of the day, which is the consumer, is getting screwed. Well, it's so surprising because I feel like it's uh, counterintuitive to the way California lawmakers usually behave, which is very anti-business. And I just want to say that one of the last things that I think is really impacting the speed at which the illicit market is transitioning to the legal market is that these regulators, a lot of them are doing it begrudgingly. You know, uh, local regulators never wanted this to pass in the first place. And so they just look at it as an opportunity to make as much money as possible, mm-hmm. right? And so they're going to tax as high as possible. They don't care about the community, right? I think this is what it comes down to. Who actually cares about this community that we're all talking about? Uh, it's a small segment of the population. Not a lot. Not a lot of Not people. Not a lot of people because it's like, oh, wow, you have to pay more for your weed? Right, exactly. Uh, no small batch, <laughs> only corporate cannabis. Like, yeah. Who cares, exactly. really, you know? And so until like that sentiment changes, and I think the medical market, et cetera, will help a lot of that change. But also, you know, and not to get on too much of a tangent, I, I warn people against, you know, what I've come to call the, the medical marijuana red herring, uh-huh. right? Which is like leading with a, it's all medicine, right? It's just, it's all medicine. Like a lot of it is medicine to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who get a lot of medical benefits, but there's also most of us who just get a therapeutic benefit, right? And we can't discount that because if you go in headstrong to regulators saying it's about the medicine, it's about the medicine, then the minute that the rec market starts to open up, they're like, but I thought you said it was all about the medicine. We did a huge disservice to ourselves. Absolutely. By yeah. saying that over and over and over again. Yeah. Because look at it today. There is no medical market. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. It's just gone. Right. Well, you, you look at other, and the other thing, right, you look at other markets that have done it better. I think, objectively, Colorado did a better job. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's a state of five and a half million people, right? So they had an easier task at hand. But they kept the medical market. They rolled out the adult use market. They made the restrictions on qualification for the medical market much higher so that if you're actually still able to get a medical card where you're paying significantly fewer taxes, it's because you have a demonstrable need to be able to go in there, pay fewer taxes, and get the medicine that you need. Mm -hmm. And adult use people don't have to pretend that they're this medical patient. They're like, no, but I'm willing to pay more. Yeah. I want my weed. Yeah. 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 I just hope that there are some brands that start to stick because that's really what we need, right? If there are a couple, you know, Kiva has Mm -hmm. done a good job of doing that. There's a couple others a little bit, but like mostly the brand wars are just at the beginning here. Yeah. This is episode one of the brand wars, right? And it's really interesting. It's, it's very interesting, especially if you don't own a brand. Right. Well, especially coming from the traditional days and listen, like, I love so many of the old school cultivators that I've met. Um, I, I was having a conversation with Brett from Wonder Brett not long ago. Yeah. Talked to Brett. Yeah. yeah, Brett's like he's a diehard, you know, quality cannabis above all else, uh-huh. right? Like as long as I'm putting out the best flower I can, then everything's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's working out really well for him. But I kind of disagree with that statement. Like the market's going in a very different direction. It's going in the way of everything else that CPG has done, mm-hmm. right? It's about branding. It's about demographics. It's about identifying who your target market is and catering to them, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's why Kiva has done such a good job. Kiva, you know, doses to a certain extent. I know it's a more localized brand, yeah. but they, and even MedMen, right? A lot of people don't realize that MedMen were successful. Is MedMen going to survive? Yes. 
I think they're going to survive. I think it's going to be a very different incarnation uh-huh. from what it is today. But the brand is strong enough that it's going to live. Exactly, which plays exactly into what I'm talking yeah. about. They were the first ones to understand that this emerging consumer market was looking for an approachable brand. Yeah. And they were, they were brand guys. Like Most people don't realize it, that those guys had an agency. Yeah. I think it was called Modman that was doing work for dispensaries. And they said, these people don't know what they're doing. We can do this better. Yeah. And that's how they got into Mad Men yeah. and started doing that. Yeah. And now you look at whether it's the Kivas or the Bebos or Lord Jones or Lowell, right? Any of these companies that have spent a significant amount of money but see, on the brand. Even as big of companies as those are, there will be a lot of people listening to this that don't know those names. No, absolutely. Isn't yeah. that fascinating? Yeah. yeah. It's so it's so easy to become, you know, to put on the blinders in our industry, yeah. right? And just like not think about people outside. Yeah. But I love talking to family for that. Like I'll talk to family back home and say, hey, do you guys know about this? And almost always it's no. Yeah. Um, but they're always really excited to learn about it. Oh, you mean you don't read new cannabis ventures? Right. Every day? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Alan. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to shift gears a little bit. I love to know about the person behind the work. You obviously do some very important work. Um, what kind of consumer are you at the end of the day? Obviously you don't get high all day. I can mm-hmm. see that, but, um, at the end of the day, are you a daily consumer? First of all? Yeah, I would say so. And, um, what are you into? Flowers, concentrates? You know, what are, for, uh, you know, I was uh, on another podcast recently and they talk about, well, your first experience and then your preferred experience. Okay. Right? That's cool. And so my first experience was, as so many of us, I was like in high school and I was trying to impress a girl. So like, you know, she was smoking weed and I was like, yeah, I'll hit some of that too. Right? And, you know, I can talk about that for a long time, just about what went through my head that first time I smoked weed. What did go through your head? It was mostly, you know, Everyone expects it's going to be this like, you know, monumentous I'm high thing. But it was really, it was. It's very subtle. Yeah. And I was like, I've been lied to. Yeah. 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 That was the first thing that went through my head. I've been bamboozled. Yeah. That's how I felt. I mean, I was like, you know, I grew up in the Nancy Reagan, just say no era, right? Just your brain on drugs in a frying pan situation. And when I finally smoked weed, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? This is what all the hubbub is about. And so that's when I, like, I think I immediately became an advocate for it because I was like, well, if they're lying to me about this, what else are they lying to me about? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so like that really kind of sparked me up and then, but I didn't really start smoking. No pun intended. No, no pun intended. Um, that was probably like my senior year of high school. And then I went to school and I had a few kids, mostly from California Mm -hmm. who always had good bud and we'd get together and smoke occasionally. Mm -hmm. But I did a semester abroad when I was in, uh, college and I went to Australia. I was living in Sydney and I ended up rooming with an Irishman. Um, Jerome Joyce, I'll never forget Jerome. And we had a good time. We had, we had so much fun together, but he smoked weed, but being Irish, he would always smoke spliffs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And for me, like 80% tobacco, yeah, 80% yeah. tobacco. And like for him, what historically would have been hash or yeah. flour, if you can find it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I started smoking spliffs and I smoked tobacco at the time. I smoked from like 18 to 36. Thank God I stopped doing that. Um, congratulations. Thanks. But during that whole period of time, a spliff was by far my preferred, and it was the ritual of it too, right? As you mentioned, I don't, I don't just tend to smoke during the day. Like I'm not a person who functions better when I'm stoned, uh-huh. but I've got a hamster in the wheel going in my head all the time. So when I get home at the end slow of the night, it down, yeah. I want to slow it down. I want to shut it off. I want to put something stupid on television and laugh without worrying about what do I have to do And tomorrow. do you achieve that? I do. Absolutely. Good for you, And man. it takes the edge off. You know, I can feel my shoulders drop. Yeah. You get a little stone. 
Um, Good for so, you. So, like, I appreciate that. But then I quit smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can't keep smoking spliffs. If I keep smoking right, spliffs, right, yeah. I'm going to go back. Be addicted. Yeah. Right. So I kind of took a little break. And I, I would smoke flour occasionally. But then as the market matured, I was introduced to vape pens. Mm. And I was like, this is perfect. It was for you. Yeah. This is for me. It's much easier to dose. Yeah. Um, it's a, it doesn't last as long. The effect doesn't last as long. So I can titrate better. Yeah. Um, I, I don't wake up. Like, I'm one of those people who can get a weed hangover. You know, like really? you wake up the next yeah. day and you're just not 100% there. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that, especially when you're running a business. Like, that's just not. And what happens, like, if you have a cup of coffee? Um, it'll help. Yeah, yeah it'll helps, definitely yeah. take the edge off of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I, I, I can hit a vape pen all night and wake up the next morning, clear as day. But not like a dab. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. I've only done a couple of dabs in my life. And uh-huh. I'll leave that to the professionals. You know? I'm a, you know, I don't, I can't say that I have a huge tolerance. I have more, more tolerance than most beginners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not as much, not nearly as much of a You're tolerance. You're an average regular user. Yeah, yeah. I'm an average Joe user. Yeah. You know, and I love that's the thing. Or about an the, average Jose. Is that a bad <laughs> joke? Or? I'll take it. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but we were uh, talking about brands and I love that, you know, this market is introducing all this product differentiation. Right. Like I love trying new edibles and I'll try different vape pens and I'll try. You, know, you like my, to experiment. Yeah. That's cool. One of my favorite uh, one of my favorite products uh, is actually out of Colorado. And again, I'm not getting paid to endorse them, but <laughs> it's uh, it's called Stillwater. Yeah. And they were the first water soluble powder that i encountered yeah so you buy this little container it's like a, it's like a pack like like little packets of sugar in a container and you can either sprinkle it on food or you can pour it in a drink yeah. and like the other thing i like to do um take the edge off is i, I, I like drinking whiskey and i'll have like a glass yeah. or two of whiskey at the end yeah. of the night i'm an old-fashioned guy oh i love old fashions but at one point i just started drinking straight whiskey and you can ask my <laughs> wife about this at one point i started Pouring still water into the whiskeys, and I, I just I dubbed the drink a cloudy day in Kentucky because it makes it like a cloudy okay, color, right. and it's like so I'm getting my whiskey and I'm getting my weed at the same time. Wow. That's a nice That's kind a of take the edge off at the end of the day. Does your wife like weed? She does. Yeah, she she's not nearly as much of a consumer. She grew up in Minnesota, and so you know she had even less exposure. Because I think me growing up in New Jersey, especially urban New Jersey, it was always around. You're close to New York. Too. Yeah, you're close to New York. It's always around. You always knew friends who had blunts. Yeah. Um, for her, Midwest, you know, not as much. Well, thank you so much for joining us. How can our audience help you? Oh, man, it's been a pleasure. It's actually you know, so fun to talk about all this stuff. Right now, I'm doing everything I can to, you know, to help raise awareness for the book. Again, the book's called The Highest Common Denominator. It's available on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah, you can find it on my website as well. How Roger, long is it? Is it really um, long? It's 290 pages. I apologize. Pages. I haven't read it. I know. It's yeah. 290 pages. Yeah. With, and we're working on getting an audio book out. Because, okay. Are you going to read it? I think I am. Cool. Yeah. I actually had a buddy of mine who lives here in LA. Because I've lived here on and off for about 15 years. And I have a buddy of mine who does voiceovers. And he's got a really good voice. Uh-huh. And I was going to approach him. Uh-huh. I was like, I want you to read my book. Cool. And he's like, I could do that. But one, it's going to be, you know, it's going to take a while. It'll be really expensive. He's like, and at the end of the day, they don't want to hear me. They want to hear you. I think so. You have plenty good enough voice. You well, could do it. Thank, but no one likes to hear their own voice. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you do. I've huh? gotten over it. Yeah. <laughs> I used to. Yeah. I felt weird about it. And then, meh. Yeah. It just kind of yeah. happened. I have to also, like, I need to see if I can get. Everyone who contributed, because there's about six or seven different asides in the book. Uh-huh. So I interview some people in the industry that only industry people know, and other people. So you know, Marv Washington, Ricky Williams, Tiki Barber, Emily Paxia, Sick. Rico Tarver, Dave Tran. These guys all contributed yeah. their stories about 
diversity and inclusion in the space cool. to the book. So I'm hoping to see if I can line them up to read their portions as cool. well. But you can also you can find it on rogerobando.com as well. That's R O G E R O B A N D O dot com. And you can find all the necessary, you know, events that I'm doing. I'm gonna be at South by Southwest. Ricky and I are actually speaking on a panel together cool. about social justice initiatives, about creating more access to our communities. Cool. Uh, to be a part of it. Do you know the show Jesus and Miro? I do. Okay, so you know how they do the neon sign? Like, if you had a neon sign above your bodega for the rest of your life, right? what would your neon... I stole this from them, right? I love it. So, um, what would your neon sign say? Hmm. The first thing that came to mind, it would say relax. I fucking love that. Yeah. Thank you. It's been so fun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. It's been a good time. Look forward to doing it again someday. Thank you. Good stuff, man. Thank you.